sometime, uh, I guess sometime this last year, I was getting a, a body work session, and the person was working on me, and he was asking me what I was experiencing, and I kept saying, well, in the body I feel this such and such, and I'm noticing arising in the mind this thing. <laughs> and he turned and he looked at me and he said, what is it with you Buddhists? <laughs> the body, the mind. Isn't it your body? Isn't it your mind? And I really thought about that at the time and have continued to think about it. And part of it is a convention of language that we've chosen to use here, and for some very good reasons. And my teachers use the language often. I mean, you hear us giving instructions, bring your attention to the breath, bring it to the body. And my teacher taught in this way, and I assume that my teachers got it from their teachers in in some way. And there's some tremendous benefits to this, what we call this disidentification that the word the brings to our relationship to our body. And there's some drawbacks. So this talk tonight is going to be on the benefit of the the and the drawback of the the. So it's sort of the body, my body, and maybe our body and body of the earth. So, the body. Why are we trying to stop us from being so identified with the body? Because we're really identified with the body. We human beings are so identified. We spend so much time attached, caught, thinking about, working on, doing things about, just relating to our bodies in... um, in kind of in, in a in a way that's about my body, and for good reason because it is my body. You look in the mirror; it looks like it's our body. It doesn't look like somebody else's body. <laughs> As um, the playwright Eve Ensler, who wrote the vagina monologue, she's um, I have this great picture of her. She's been doing a new a new play called The Good Body, and she says, "I've now shown my naked, flabby." Post forty stomachs in twenty city, post forty stomach in twenty cities across America. I've shown it to moans of embarrassment and to wild cheers of liberation. I've shown it on days when I felt lean and mean, and on days when I imagined that showing of it would kill any prospect of a future relationship. <laughs> and then she goes on to say all the cities that she um, that she showed it in, and she says the play is an examination of what we women do to our bodies. The sucking, scrubbing, pricking, piercing, plucking, perming, cutting, covering, lightening, tightening, waxing, whittling, flattening, and starving we do in order to be good, to be loved, and accepted. So she's a real heroine of mine in her work around body activism, and um, maybe I dedicate this talk to her. So... We know, and I don't need to talk too much about it, because we know the way, certainly, as, as Deborah was talking about last night, the dominant culture in America has a real body obsession, and the amount that, in particular, women do, but also men. 
And also the sense of, um, it's not just my physical body that we're attached to, but it's my thoughts, my opinions, my emotions, my needs, my problems, me, me, me. It's, it's, it's a real culture of me that we live in. And so it becomes really skillful from a Buddhist perspective to turn this around and stop and find ways in our language and in our teachings, and of course, as reflected in our practices, to stop seeing the body so much as me. And the reason it's a problem is because it can cause a lot of suffering. When we are so identified and something happens to our body that's not what we expected or wanted, we suffer. So a lot of you showed up here feeling really excited about your week of peaceful relaxation and ease. And little did you know, it was allergy season. And that spirit rock is, um, you know, because of the rains, the grasses are quite high and there's lots of pollen. And I know I'm so sorry for the many of you who have been sneezing and coughing and really in a lot of discomfort. Our bodies do these things. They get sick. And what's interesting is that we often take it personally. We think when we get sick, we think it's going to last forever. We see it as my big problem, my suffering, my body. And um, what's, what the Buddha taught us that's so profound, and actually you can see it in the life story of the Buddha, is the way opening to the reality, the truth of our body is the doorway into liberation. The Buddha stepped out of denial through the door of the body. And, I mean, that can have a lot of meaning, but what I mean specifically right now is when the Buddha was a prince, Siddhartha Gautama, and he was living in this castle, and as the legend goes, he was completely cut off from any reality about the world, He was sheltered because his parents, because there was a prophecy saying that if he he would either become a great king and ruler or a a monastic or an, an ascetic. And his parents really thought that would be a bad idea. They wanted him to be a king. So they um, prevented him from seeing anything that would turn his mind towards renunciation. So it's said that on his 29th birthday, he, um, he got really curious. And he got, went outside of the castle doors. And this is all, you know, it's both metaphorical and legend, and maybe it was true. Um, but he went outside of the castle doors with his charioteer, this man named Chanda. And they drove around the city, and they saw what's called the four heavenly messengers. They saw an old person a sick person, a dying person, and then they saw a monk. What happened was the Buddha upon, or the Buddha-to-be, upon seeing these three things, broke his denial that everything was great. He had been living in this castle with all the, the, um, the, you know, anything he could ever desire he had all the food and the, and the luxuries and the comforts of the day. And when he saw these four signs, he knew that he needed to seek liberation. So it was through waking up to the body 
to the truth about the body, that our bodies get old, they get sick, and they die, that he decided to go searching for freedom. So this is, for us, a symbolic teaching reminding us that when we step out of denial and into the truth of things, then we can find freedom ourselves. When we see that our body ages and we... And and it's not... I want to be clear because, of course, we know, okay, we're getting old or I'm getting sick and sometimes I'm sick, but it's it's not that sort of everyday kind of... Um, oh yeah, I'm getting older, oh yeah, people die. It's not like that. It's much more really learning to live with this truth and live with the implications of the truth that this is the body, the body of all humans, the body of all humans that ages and gets ill and passes away, and that I can practice, that I can practice for a kind of freedom from this this constant obsession with me, myself, and I. So if you're a kind of person who doesn't like to think about these things, and you had met the Buddha hundreds, thousands of years ago, he might have given you a practice that is given today by monks and um, by teachers in in, Buddha. all around the world called the five daily reflections. And these five daily reflections are where you sit and you actually contemplate the old age sickness and death. And you say, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I I am of the nature to be ill. I have not gone beyond illness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. Or I will be separated from everything I love. This is, it's pretty heavy. I'm acknowledging that. And then the last of the daily reflections is the reflection that beings are the owners of their karma or their actions, that it's not in our, that their suffering, their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions and not on my wishes for them. So it's the development, the last, the fifth one is a development of some kind of acceptance of things as they are. I actually like to do this practice in combination with a compassion practice where I imagine, I, I take the first reflection, beings are subject to, um, to, I am subject to aging. And then I imagine everyone I know who's aging. And then beings who are aging all around the world. I just imagine that as much as I can. And I breathe in the suffering of aging, my own suffering, the suffering of everyone And I breathe out compassion. And I do this with each each of these daily reflections as a way to remind me, as Don Juan talks about, to keep death over my shoulder, to remind me of the preciousness of this human life, and to practice with vigilance. This body is subject to all of these things. 
So the more I do these practices, the more I open to this sense of body as not me, not mine, but the body. And it starts to feel skillful to call it the body. And sometimes it even feels like our body, this connected body. So the Buddha talked quite significantly about the ways that our natures are, that this body is not uh, independent. And it's talked about, in contemporary times, we talk about it a lot as interbeing or interconnection. So Thich Nhat Hanh is one of the people who coined, he coined the phrase interbeing, which is this wonderful sense that we're made up of all sorts of things that are not just me. And it's one way of breaking the spell, of breaking the trance of thinking that this is self. Okay, so here's what Thich Nhat Hanh said. If we observe observe things mindfully and profoundly, he explained, we find out that self is made up only of non-self elements. If we look deeply into a flower, what do we see? We also see sunshine, a cloud, the earth, minerals, the gardener, the complete cosmos. Why? Because the flower is composed of these non-flower elements. That's what we find out. And like this flower, our body too is made up of everything else except for one element, a separate self or existence. This is the teaching of non-self in Buddhism. In order to just be ourself, we must take care of the non-self elements. We all know this, that we cannot be without other people, other species, but very often we forget that being is really interbeing, that living beings are made up of non-self elements. So we can do an exercise where we might take a piece of paper and think about all of the conditions that led to this piece of paper being here. The tree and the person who cut it and the and the earth and the soil and the rain and the humans and and what he'll say quite frequently is in this paper I can see the presence of the entire universe. And so, too, in these bodies, we can see the presence of the entire universe. Our parents, and our parents' parents, and our parents' 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 parents, and, you know, it just goes on and on. We are not alone. It is my body, but it's my body dependent on so many other causes and conditions. Sometimes when you're meditating, you might have an insight into this interconnection. So you might be walking outside and you feel the wind, the breeze on your face, and you notice um, a deer, or it might even be more ordinary than that. You just look at the garden, and you might have a sense that, wow, there's not so much separation here. And sometimes it might be the sense of awe and wonder And sometimes it might be a kind of shock or, wait a minute, I kind of think of myself as this encapsulated skin unit, but actually I'm I'm connected. And sometimes it's even incredibly funny. It's just, wow, I thought I was separate. What was I thinking all this time? So again, we take it out of my body 
into the body, into our body. So we find that another way that the the language of the body can be helpful is around the clinging to the sense of self, to the body itself. And Deborah talked about it some last night, and I'll just reiterate a little because it's so significant in the Buddhist teachings. We take our thoughts, our emotions, our sensations, our breath, we take our bodies to be me. We cling to, we take it to be me and mine. And why wouldn't we, right? And I said that earlier. It feels like it's me and mine. But this body, as Thich Han was pointing to, is made up of all these elements. And the Buddha talked about it specifically in terms of what he called the five aggregates. So he said that um, he, it, oftentimes he would have people look for a sense of self and you can never really find one because what is the self? Is it this body? Well, what if there was no life in this body? Then is it something infusing life into the body? Is it my thoughts? Is it my brain? Is it what is me? And if you start to examine that, it's really hard to figure it out. And of course we use a conventional language, like we say the body or me, but it's kind of like saying trees are in the forest. The forest is a conventional language we use for this set of trees, but there isn't really a forest in the sense, it's all these individual trees. So with the five aggregates that make up our, that make up who we are, there's the form, which is the physical manifestation. And then there's consciousness, which is what knows, so some kind of awareness. And then there's feelings, which, uh, which Philip talked about the other day in the instruction, when we experience pain or pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So this is happening all the time. So there's form with consciousness, having some, some, act, some kind of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience. There's, there's uh, sorry, um, so there's perception, which is recognizing what's happening. So we're seeing what's happening, we're labeling it, we're trying to understand it. And then there's what's called sankara, or mental formations, which is technically, this one's a little hard to understand, but it's sort of, the previous, previous, um, previous actions and then our volition and our ability to make change in this life. So, so we might have a response to something based on previous, we could call it karma, or previous conditions, and then we can, um, we can act out of it in all sorts of ways. The reason I'm, I'm going into this, and it can sound a little theoretical and sort of, well, what's the point here? Well, there's a there's couple of reasons. One is we begin to see that if you buy this, if you buy this framework, that this is, we are made up of this set of impersonal processes. We are not this thing we take to be me. 
we're actually we're form and feelings and perceptions and consciousness and it's all happening at this rapid pace and you can sometimes see it in your meditation practice when suddenly there's this moment oh there's just body or there's awareness i can connect i can become aware of awareness itself or you can see something moving really rapidly you can see the shifting and it takes a lot of sort of presence to connect into this but it is possible to see this non-self. A different way of talking about it might be that whatever we're experiencing, whether it's a thought or an emotion or a sensation, it's not me or mine. It doesn't belong to us. It's just something moving through. Without the self, there's much more, there's freedom. We don't get so in trouble, okay? So I'm, I'll give you some examples so it comes a little bit more down to earth. But just to say, uh, one of our teachers used to say, no self, no problem. So if you don't have a self, if, if you have a self, you have lots of problems. If you have no self, no problem. So, for instance, you have a thought, and the thought is, I'm a really lousy meditator. That person in front of me has been meditating, um, is sitting up so much straighter, and I'm sure they have complete peace of mind, and I'm terrible at meditating. Okay, you could sit there and you can believe it. You could sit there and think, gosh, that thought is so true, and I'm such a bad meditator. You can spend hours thinking about what a horrible meditator you are. But the truth was that a single thought came into your mind, you did not see it as empty, you grasped onto it, you believed it, and then it kind of ruled your world. It did. So what's the difference between a thought that says, I'm a horrible meditator, and a thought that says, the sky is blue? One has no charge, the other has a lot of charge. And so can we learn to see thoughts in a much more, um, in a non-clinging way so that they don't rule us and control us? So a friend of mine was meditating and was having a lot of horrible thoughts about herself. She was just in so much self-hatred. And this was outside of the meditation center um, on the East Coast. And there were all these little chipmunks. And she bent down to look at one of the chipmunks. And as she went down to the chipmunk, the chipmunk ran away. And she thought, I'm such a horrible meditator. Even the chipmunks hate me. And um, she went in to see her teacher. And he said, what's going on? And And she said, I'm having such a horrible time. Even the chipmunks hate me. And he looked at her and he said, even the chipmunks hate me. The sky is blue. And she got it. Okay, the sky is blue. It's just a thought. It's not me. It's part of one of the five aggregates. It's a response. It's a, it's a, um, it's a perception. It's a perception coupled with feeling, coupled with some of the volition. It's a combination of things. We can begin, the more we practice, to see these thoughts and feelings as not my thoughts and feelings and sensations, but the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations. 
So, for instance, I had it once I was on a retreat and I was practicing, and I was giving myself, I was giving myself a lot of um, pressure to do well. And I really wanted to be a good meditator. And one of the stories I laid on myself was that good meditators don't sleep that much. So I had this idea that if I could just sleep four or five hours a night, I would be a good meditator and I would be diligent and I would succeed and probably get enlightened in the next week or so. And um, so I would work really hard. And then sometimes I would sleep four or five hours and sometimes I would sleep six or more hours. It, your, our bodies change. They do. And sometimes when you're sitting a long retreat, you get less sleep, but it's not necessarily always consistent. So um, what would happen was I would fall asleep, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd look at the clock. If I had slept four or five hours, I'd be fine, I'd be happy, I'd get up and I'd start doing some walking meditation. If I looked at the clock and the clock said that I had slept six or seven hours, guilt, tremendous guilt would set in. You're so lazy, I can't believe, you know, you have all this you're trying to do, that's so bad. And it was um, extremely painful. And I believed it. I had taken this guilt to be me and mine. I believed it. And so I began to be more and more diligent with it, to note, oh, there's guilt. And whenever you have a a particularly pernicious sort of mental state, it's really helpful to use a label, guilt, fear, worry. And you can just keep coming back again and again. And as we've talked about, sometimes it can be helpful to really feel into your body in the midst of something, in the midst of some guilt or shame or worry. What's going on inside your body? This is very helpful practice. So one morning, I remember, I woke up, I looked at the clock, and I saw that I had slept seven or eight hours. And this little voice in my head says, here it comes. And the next thing that happened was, you're so bad, I can't believe it. But there was space. There was space. I saw it coming. And it was actually this amazing moment of freedom. Because although the guilt continued to come, I stopped taking it so personally in that moment. It was, it was extremely helpful for learning to work with things, to see the nature of the, the impersonal nature of my thoughts and emotions. I used to practice in uh, a monastery in, in Burma. And I, it was hard there because I would get sick a lot. And I had a tendency towards some hypochondria. So not only was I getting sick, but I was worrying about getting sick all the time. And so I would um, worry and worry and worry, and then I'd get a little sick, and then I would think, uh-oh, this is Jardia. Uh-oh, this is amoeba. They're going to have to send me home. I have a, I, Once my tooth hurt, and suddenly I, I started panicking for two days, thinking I was going to have to go to a dentist that was going to do something awful to... You know, I just... You can just imagine. <laughs> well, you don't have to imagine. Maybe it's happening for you. But anyways, um, so... I just kept being really diligent with the um, being aware of what I called hypochondria. And I didn't say, when I would note it, I wouldn't say it in a mean way. I wouldn't say, hypochondria, get back to your breath, <laughs> which is um, not that helpful. I would note, oh, hypochondria. And sometimes I say, oh, 
honey, hypochondria, you poor thing, what's going on? And sometimes I would just lay in my bed and just hold my chest and say, and just soothe myself, soothe myself. And sometimes I would investigate and say, what's going on? Oh, there's fear. And sometimes when I would feel the fear, it wasn't even about the sickness itself. It was just about loneliness or just kind of a basic fear of being human. So anyway, one day I was walking, um, I was walking in, in my house and I think I hit my head on something and then forgot about it. And the next day, I was in the, I was in the um, sink, and I was washing my face, and I felt this big bump on my head. And I thought, oh, my God, brain tumor. <laughs> and then the next thing that happened was a voice that said, Diana, you got to stop this. You must stop. And, I really, and it was very loving and gentle, and it was really clear that I was developing this witness, this caring witness for myself that wasn't going to let me take me so personally. It just wasn't, because it saw how much suffering I was creating. And that's really where we're aiming with this piece of the practice. As we do this, we cultivate the quality of equanimity. Equanimity, this even-minded, balanced state of mind that can be with whatever is arising. So we can have all sorts of ups and downs and difficulties, and the retreat isn't the way we want it, and we came here expecting one thing, but instead everybody's talking, why don't they shut up, and what? how come I don't get what I want, and I don't like the food. We can come there like that, and we can still have our reactions. So having an even mind or a balanced mind isn't about not reacting. We're humans. It's about having a capacity to be present with whatever is arising. This is what we're trying to cultivate here. This is this path, this path of selflessness, of non-self, of non-identification as body, as me, as mine, can lead to tremendous sense of equanimity. Equanimity is not trying to control things to make it better. Equanimity is not running away from something. Equanimity just learns to be with things as they are. So another moment when I was practicing in Asia, I was having a really... I had. I had a pretty hard time. I had a great time. I had a really transformative time. But I also had a hard time. And I was really scared of the bugs. It was in the jungle in Burma, and there were snakes and spiders. Well, snakes, not a bug, but I was scared of snakes. I was scared of spiders and scorpions, and there were these giant beetles, like about that big, and spiders, big plate-sized spiders. And there was, um, it was just kind of beyond my wildest nightmares of um, bugs, wildlife. And um, so the worst... Truly, the worst part about all of the bugs was the mosquitoes. So I, would, I love to do outside walking meditation and really connect in with my body, under, especially at night under the stars. No way. You couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. 
And I was living in this little hut, and the hut had no screens. And so I had a mosquito net. Um, so I would practice under the mosquito net, either on my bed or just on a, on a chair on my cushion. And, um, but the mosquitoes would be coming in. So I started going through this period of time where I began to design mosquito traps. <laughs> and I, um, I came up with really great ideas, actually. Um, one of them was I had this bucket, and I filled it with dirty lake water. And I put it out, and I waited for the mosquitoes to land on it overnight. And in the morning, I'd wake up, and I'd take it outside. And of course, they always escaped. And then I found another trap where I, well, I put, I put um, magazines on all the windows. And um, then I started to suffocate, because it was about 110. And then, so I took those off. And then I had one where I, um, where I stood. This actually was the best. I, stood, I turned out all the lights at night, stood in front of the window, and shouted at them, come and get me. <laughs> and I think they were actually attracted to the light outside me. But anyway, they, they all flew at me, and I jumped out of the way, and they flew out the window, and then I slammed the window. <laughs> and that was extremely successful. But after a certain point, I realized that, um, number one, I wasn't really meditating. Um, two, I could design mosquito traps to my heart's content. But no matter what I did, there would always be another mosquito. And I realized that I needed to work on my equanimity, not the mosquito traps. Because there will always be another mosquito. There always will be another difficulty. Our body gets sick. We show up at Spirit Rock and we get allergies. We are, we, there's always something. There's always something. So can we learn to not take it so personally? To develop a mind of open, spacious awareness that can be present with things as they are, even in the midst of all the difficulties. And that's the promise of equanimity. That's what equanimity is about. We can be present no matter what is happening. This is um, a little poem from Basho, who was a Zen monk. He says, he, he practiced a lot in, the, um, in barns and in sort of un, not so pleasant circumstances. And this is a poem of equanimity. He said, fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> And this one is from Thich Nhat Hanh, and it was... <laughs> but you see what I mean? It's just things as they are. Things as they are. Horse pissing near my pillow. Thich Nhat Hanh, this one was done during the war, um, during, the, during the Vietnam War. He wrote this. And this even shows the potential of equanimity for um, such dire circumstances as living under war. He said... Flare bombs boom on the dark sky. A child claps his hand and laughs. I hear the sound of guns and the laughter dies, but the witness remains. So can we learn to see these bodies, 
these minds, these hearts, these thoughts, these emotions, these sensations, these breaths, 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 as not me, not mine, the body, the breath, the emotion. It can be very, very helpful. This language can be very helpful in this disentangling, in breaking the trance of this belief in sense of self. So just to go now back to my session with my body worker and the reminder that we Buddhists are a little obsessed with the body. How about my body? How about your body? What about, I mean, isn't it our body? So the other aspect of focusing too much on the body from the plucking and the, the filing and the dying and the, you know, all the things that Eve Ensler wrote about, the other extreme that we do is in this culture in particular is we ignore our bodies. We um, work them really, really hard. Some of you talked about coming here and just being completely exhausted and not realizing how little sleep you were getting and how hard you'd pushed yourself. Or there are some of us who feel, um, who don't eat well, who don't exercise, who ignore the body, who treat the body. Notice, by the way, that I'll say all sorts of things, the body, my body, whatever, I'm working on it. And um, so there are people who ignore the body, their bodies, there are people who see it just as a, as a means to an end. And then there's a whole range, of course, in between. And then there are people who are dealing with chronic pain all the time, and sometimes it's a welcome relief to get away from the sense of the body. And then there are those of us who are mentally inclined and sort of aren't really interested in the body. It's just this sort of necessary appendage that you have to carry around because it has all your organs and everything in it. <laughs> it's actually an interesting question, just as a side note. Where is our mind? Don't answer it, just think about it. Where is our mind? Is our mind in our bodies? Is it here? Is it here? I mean, we... and usually talk about it as being in our, in our skull because that's where our sense organs are. But in other cultures, it's in the heart. In other cultures, it's located in all sorts of strange places that are strange to us, you know? And then once someone said to me, maybe our um, body is in our minds. You know, that's trippy. You think about that. <laughs> it really changes everything. Wow. Maybe, who knows? Where is, your, where is your mind? The scientists have no idea. Do you know that? The scientists don't know. They've come out with, there was like a Time Magazine article a number of years ago that says, conclusively the scientists have determined, who had done this study, that um, they don't know where our minds are. <laughs> I guess the scientists have lost their minds. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So, so we... Um, so what happens is that sometimes when we, if we tend to be a person who doesn't really value our body or it's sort of secondary to other things, perhaps to our minds, our brains, 
that we hear this disidentification from the body and we kind of feel at home. Like, oh, okay, yeah, the body, the body. I don't need to worry about the body. But actually, that is, um, it's really missing the point. And so as we've been teaching this whole week, we've been giving talks about conscious embodiment, awareness through the body. And really, this practice shows us that we can wake up in the midst of our bodies and that our bodies are the vehicle for waking up. So I know for myself, I was, I'm only bringing this up because I was one of those people. I really, really loved the mental realm. And I found that it was easier for me to be in the mental realm than it was to be in the physical realm. And when I started doing meditation practice, I took to it immediately. I loved the language of the body. And back then, and this was you know, almost 20 years ago, there weren't doing body retreats. It just wasn't, or maybe there were, but I, they, I didn't know of them. And so I really did my practice in a way that was about cultivating mind, 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 and forgetting about body, body, body. And you can imagine that there were not great consequences. At one point, I pushed myself so hard that I really hurt my knees. Um, At another point, I was ignoring a lot of emotional stuff that was inside me because I didn't want to deal with this thing made up of the bo- in the body. I was, um, sometimes we call it a spiritual bypass. When you go over something that's important and you forget that actually this body is, it's really, it's all we have. It's the most important thing to take care of as we, um, as we live in this journey of life. And I had sort of wanted to be in this mental world. I had come across this science fiction book years ago where they had created these little creatures who were basically humans inside a box. And they, hum- they had eyes everywhere, and they didn't have to have any of their bodily needs tended to. So I recently looked up this book just when I was thinking about this talk, and I just want to read you the quote because it's kind of bizarre. They asked the the creatures what it was like to be in these boxes, these humans inside a box, and they said, and the response was, um, was the, the creature in the box said, well, what's it like being the way you are? being assembled around a stomach that you have to keep thinking about and feeding instead of having your nutritional needs taken care of automatically so you never have to think about it? What's it like only to be able to see one thing at a time, to be distracted by pain all the time, run by emotions, hormones, heat, cold? What's it like to have to deal with this and do all those nasty things with your bodies? (laughs) So... So I just bring this up to remind us that, um, that there is this sort of other extreme. And in my case, when I began to, the more actually it was doing my meditation practice that ultimately led me back into my body. 
And it reminded me, especially after that time that I had hurt my knees, and they did recover, obviously, I'm fine. Um, at hurting my knees, after cutting off different pieces of emotional life, after, you know, as I started to feel body aches and pains and realize, wait a minute, this is, uh, this is something that needs to be tended to. And through the practice, I began to awaken more and more to my body. To this, even to the part of me that still, to a certain degree, is kind of like, I'd rather just go up here. And then I notice that. And I remind myself and I say, Diana, just come back down. Bring yourself into your body. And finding more and more pleasure in the body in a way that's not that clinging kind of pleasure that we were talking about, but just the tremendous joy of being alive, of being a human in this human form, of having this extraordinary gift we call the body. So there was a moment for me that was very significant in this process, and that was when I realized that one of the things that really kept me from enjoying or wanting or liking having a body was that I kind of, I kind of had a lot of grief about what it meant to be human. I felt like it just wasn't fair to live on this planet when there's so much suffering and pain and poverty and injustice and racism and greed and violence and war. And when I would think about it at times, especially as a younger person, I would start to feel this huge sense of grief and the sense of get me out of here. I didn't want to be human. I ended up um, having and having this experience where one of my teachers and friends and mentors is Joanna Macy, and some of you are quite familiar with her. She's an echo philosopher and Buddhist teacher and just wonderful woman. She's 77 now, has been doing tremendous work in relation to our grief and suffering about the world and how to transform that, mostly into action. And I was talking with her one day about this deep, deep frustration about being a human in this time. And she said to me, well, you know, of course, and I know you're committed to the Bodhisattva vow. And she was talking, Deborah mentioned it last night, but she's talking about this vow that is within the Buddhist tradition that invites us to do our practice for the benefit of all beings. That when we practice, it's not just for us alone, but that it has huge effects on everyone we touch and everything we encounter. And that we can take these vows and remind ourselves of this commitment to the world, to helping alleviate the suffering of the world. And she said, well, you took that bodhisattva vow, right? And I said, yeah, but uh, I don't really want it. It's too, much, it's too hard. It's too, every, everything's such a mess. You can only do so much. I'm a little, you know, I just, and so she told me this story. There's a practice that she does in her trainings where she, and I, unfortunately I can't remember the name, but she reminds people, it's sort of like this interactive process where you, 
look at your relationship to the bodhisattva vow. And you can all always interpret it in your own language. You don't have to use it. But dedicating your life to service, for instance, is a way of talking about it. And what she has people do is she has them lie down and, um, and imagine, just think about the circumstances of their life. Like what if, if you were a being and it was before, and you don't have to believe in birth or rebirth or reincarnation or anything, but let's say you were imagining being reborn into this world and you would choose your parents and you would choose your geographical location and you would choose your, um, your race and your ethnicity and you would choose your um, what kind of education and you can make all these choices because you were a bodhisattva planning to incarnate to help everyone on this planet. And that was the, that's kind of the, the mythology in the story. And so what you do is everybody lies down and you sort of imagine that, imagine that, and then you go into yourself and you ask yourself the question, Am I ready? Am I ready to be here? And am I ready to um, am I ready to find my calling in this world? And it doesn't have to be some big calling like um, you know saving the planet. It could just be being a really great mom and raising very healthy children, or doing work that's really satisfying that benefits others. Whatever it is that's your bodhisattva inclination. And so everyone's lying down, and then when they're ready, they stand up and they they declare that they're here, really. I'm here in this world. And I said to her, and I heard this whole story, and I said, but what if I don't really want to be here? And she looked at me with all the force of her energy and wisdom, and she said, is there any place you'd rather be? <laughs> and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Of course I'm here. Of course I'm in this body. Of course I ha- I'm, there is a calling. There's a calling inside me. There's a calling inside each of us. And I can come out and manifest it. And I can ignore and deny and forget about this body, my body, or I can inhabit it and love it and take care of it and tend to it and give it the kind of, of um, respect and honor it deserves and help this body be of service to all beings. Things shifted after that. So as we can see, we can bring together the wisdom of selflessness with the wisdom of conscious embodiment. No self and self, the body, the body, my body. We can bring these together. And we, I think the edge of our practice is living this paradox that we're both fully human and something beyond fully human. That there's self and non-self, and they're both together. Form, you know, in the traditional Buddhist language, for those of you who know this, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. There's not a separation. Can we live and inhabit and love 
and be mindful and human in this body and at the same time be aware of birth, old age, sickness and death. At the same time connect with interdependence. At the same time connect with this sense of non-clinging and rest in that equanimity. This is our task. This is our task. So I think I'll end with um, my favorite current bodhisattva vow, um, which is a poem by Diane Ackerman, the novelist and um, naturalist and poet. And it's called School Prayer. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, as an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors and the day that embraces it and the cloud veils drawn over it and the uttermost night and the male and the female and the crowning seasons of the firefly and the apple, I will honor all life, including our own, wherever and in whatever form it may dwell on earth, my home, and in the mansions of the stars. So let's sit. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 30, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Aud. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.